Well, last week, if you were here, you know that we started a brand new kind of mini sermon series that we've titled One Body, One Spirit. And we're looking to Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus to learn about unity in the body of Christ, which is you and I, that's us. We're the believers, we are the body, the church. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, you can go ahead and open to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 4 today, which we heard most of it read today. Um, And while we're just kind of making our way there, I would just like to talk a little bit about my experience the last week and a half or so. Uh, My family and I, we just got back from a vacation to southeast Alaska. Uh, My parents and my grandparents, they all live in Ketchikan. And uh, my wife and I and our family, we like to go down there once, twice a year for a quick little visit, a quick little rest. Uh, But we we were like desperate for some just capital R rest. You know that feeling? So we took kind of an extended stay, and we were just uh, with family, and it was awesome. We tried to go a few weeks ago. We ended up getting COVID, so we had to push it back. And then we finally got down there, and then our family got COVID down at Ketchikan, so whatever. It was just a weird big mess. But, I mean, at the end of the day, we kind of just sat on the porch, and we watched, uh, like, eagles and float planes and cruise ships go by. And if you've never seen a cruise ship next to a small town, uh, it feels more like you're moving past a cruise ship. It's wild. I, I recommend it. It's awesome. It's super relaxing. It's a lot of fun. So, I promise I'm not shoehorning this in, but unity has really, truly been on my mind uh, all week. The entire time I was with my family, the reason it was on my mind was because the whole time we were there, uh, they had like an, it's an ancient relic of the past. They had cable television going at all times, which was wild because at this point in my life, I had just forgotten cable TV existed. You ever get there? It was a big change for our family. Like, my kids couldn't comprehend it. They were like, Dad, we want to watch Bluey. And I'm like, Bluey was on two hours ago. And no, the synapses just didn't fire. They're like, okay, we'll put it on now. Like, sorry, we don't have that kind of control over cable TV. So what happened was, every time it was raining, and if you've been to Ketchikan, you know that it rains somewhere around 300 days a year. So when it was raining, we ended up just kind of watching TV or watching out the doors. But when we were watching TV, we would watch one of three things. We would watch uh, procedural crime drama, Days of Our Lives, don't judge, you don't know, Days of Our Lives, or just the five o'clock news. And those are three things that literally only work on cable TV. I'll tell you why. So firstly, all three of those things, they they just exist to add drama into your lives with no input from you whatsoever. Okay, the, right, the program opens up, they introduce you to the problem of the day, and you're just along for the ride. That's just what's happening today. You've got no control over the schedule, so you're just kind of at the mercy of the channel's whims, you know? So secondly, firstly, they add drama. Secondly, a lot of movement happens, right? Developments happen, there's twists, there's turns, personalities interact. But third, and what really ties it all together, is even though movement happens... These things are designed to never leave you with a sense of resolution. See, without a sense of resolution, with no real control over what you see or when you see it, like you're required basically to be glued to your screen. You have to move your whole schedule around so that you can continue to be a part of these things, right? To get your fix. That's the only way they're going to keep your subscription going if you're just glued to your TV. Like, imagine if all the characters on Days of Our Lives just got their lives together, right? And for some reason, they have amnesia all the time. 
I haven't figured that one out. It happens every season. Not that I watch, not that I follow. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> or like, so if the news just resolved one day, right? You turn on CBS and they're like, hey, welcome to the news. Nothing happened. Everything's fine. Have a great day. Like you wouldn't keep watching the news. You wouldn't keep paying for cable is what I'm saying. Like I have to tell you, uh, the news was on the whole time I was in Ketchikan. I've got a pretty good grasp of the stuff that happened, and uh, there was nothing good. I got nothing good to report. But like the same companies that make the decisions to leave you glued to your screen to follow, uh, you know, the next murder homicide on Law and Order, like those same companies, those same executives, they're making the same decisions about the news networks. Every development in our nation, it gets some airtime somewhere. But to really get their money's worth out of you, they need you, they need I, or me, to be invested in it. And what a better way to get us invested than to make us feel like we are a part of something bigger than ourselves. That's not an inherently negative thing, of course. We are actually designed to function as a part of something that is larger, that is bigger than ourselves. We're going to talk about that a lot today. But as I watched the news all week, as I watched the ads, the commercial for campaigns, like the only word I could actually think of, it was just division. Right? That's not new. You know that. That's not a thing. No campaign ever comes out to say, hey, we should all really get back together and do the things that the other side wants us to do. That doesn't really happen. They kind of say words that sound like that, but they mean we should fix them. This constant language of them, they, the radical, blah, 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 blah. That sort of line in the sand ideology is creating enemies. It's creating villains out of our neighbors, out of our family members, our acquaintances. And what's really discouraging, if not disturbing, is that if we're not careful, that mindset, that line in the sand mindset, it's us and them, that can probably pretty easily make its way into the church. It could begin to poison our interactions with each other rather than build each other up as is prescribed in God's word. So I kind of want you to just kind of hold on to that, that talk, that warning, that idea today. Uh, to preface, or at least to clarify, I'm not actually here to vilify the news. I think that we should be engaged with the pulse of the community, understanding what's happening in our society. I, I just, I believe that we need to practice discernment and filter that information through God's word and his will for us, for the church. So as we look to the book of Ephesians during this series, uh, we're going to be spending our time in chapter 4. But I think it would be helpful for us to kind of give a, a brief overview of chapters 1 to 3. We're going to look at it just a couple of passages pretty quickly, just so we get an idea of why Paul would write about the things that we're going to talk about today and why it would matter to us. So if you were to look at Ephesians 1, you don't need to, it'll be on the screen, what I need for you to understand. Uh, he, he opens the letter, he's just writing about all the things that Christ has done, right? It's Paul, he's really excited about it, as he should be. Christ has done some amazing things. So in, uh, if we start in chapter 1, if we look at verse 7, which we're going to read here for a sec, uh, I believe this is kind of going to give us a really good uh, contextualization of the first three chapters, okay? So, chapter 1, verse 7 of Ephesians, it says this. It'll be on the screen. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Paul's telling the church, hey, look, something new is happening here. Through Jesus, God has just set forth his purpose. He set forth his, his plans for the fullness of time. This is the end game we're talking about. So God's plan set in motion by Jesus' life, Jesus' work, is to ultimately unite all things in him. In the event that we've been desensitized to that sort of language, that idea, uh, if we were to look forward in chapter 3, Paul tells us that literally nobody in the history of anybody had ever heard any of this before. This is new information. This is breaking news. So in chapter 3, Paul, after uh, speaking of just the work of Christ, uh, his grace, he tells the church that the mystery of his will was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the good news, through the gospel. This is not just a new set of rules. This isn't just a new lens to filter the information we already have through. This revelation, it goes so far beyond that. The work of Jesus has brought about a completely new reality for us. Jesus has done a work that has opened the door for anyone to be a, become a part of God's family. God's family is no longer just a specific people group. See, for history, as far as we knew it up to this point, for an outsider to become a part of God's family, they had to kind of just be lucky enough to marry into God's people, right? They, they would shed their cultural identity. They would shed their ideas, their ideals, their history. They would adopt the societal culture of the Israelites, if you want to see this in action, uh, the book of Ruth opens with that. And I think it's a really great read. It's only four chapters. You can go home and do it today before lunch. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, if you're familiar with the story, she was an Israelite woman who took her two sons to the lands of Moab. They got married to Moabite women, but they died. And so Naomi was just left with two Moabite women as her daughters-in-law. And to Naomi, it was far easier and it was more beneficial in her mind to tell her daughters to return to their people and to their own gods. That's kind of the baseline of understanding that the early church would have had at this point in history. So, this revelation that the structure of God's family would be completely different than anything that they had previously envisioned, this was a completely new reality for them. Jesus creates something that lays the foundation for true unity. That both Jews 
They're God's chosen representatives, the people that he chose to dwell with, and Gentiles, the people that were completely apart from God's people, would be built into the new church with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. That's a big deal. So, God needs a new way to build his new church, and that's going to bring us pretty quickly to chapter 4. We're actually big, we're going to, too much caffeine, I think. We're going to begin at verse 11 of chapter 4. It'll be on the screens for you as well. Verse 11 of Ephesians 4 says this. And he gave, Jesus, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This new reality needs a new methodology. If God's going to build his church, you know, firstly, he's going to do it well. He's going to do it right. And he's going to do it towards a purpose. I do think it would be fair at this point to say that I, uh, I, re- I relied pretty heavily on a lot of this uh, from uh, Daryl Johnson's commentary on the book of Ephesians. It's called The Wonder and Walk of Being Alive in Christ. Uh, he's going, I, I, I should credit him for some of the definition work we're going to do here for a minute. So I just recommend this to you. If you guys would like to dive a little deeper into the uh, book of Ephesians, uh, this book was recommended to me for preparing for this sermon. And I re- recommend it to you. It's very, very helpful. Okay, so anyways, this, this new methodology, the, we just saw it in verse 11, okay? The new methodology is that God is giving the gifts of apostles prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. You may notice that the language here, it doesn't say that he's giving the gift of the ability to prophesy or evangelize or to shepherd people or to teach, but that each gift is actually a unique person gifted in a unique way. See, the apostles... They have set the the theological boundaries for the church. The apostles say, this is what Christ's church is built on and nothing else. Prophets, they're receiving revelation uh, from the Lord. They're able to say, like, hey, this is what God says about our current situation. Evangelists, they're able to go out among people that have never heard the gospel before or have just lived in open rejection of that gospel for their entire lives. And they're able to say, like, hey, this is the good news, and it applies to you, and it applies to me too. Shepherds or pastors, uh, they tend to the body. They administrate the work of the church, and they care for the people. And teachers, they dive into the scriptures, they meditate on Jesus' life and and his works, and they bring it into the common language of the people that are going to hear. God's new reality is given to new people, and God's new way of reaching these new people is people. Go figure. But these are a people whose lives revolve around the person of Christ, of Jesus God here, God's not creating a power structure, okay? He's not saying there's people at the top and they're going to govern the people at the bottom. There's not a new paradigm shift in that respect. Paul says in verse 12 that the reason that God has given the gifts of these people, so the gifts are these people, the gifts of these people to the church is to equip the saints for ministry. If it's not 
clear, not every saint is a shepherd. Not every saint is a teacher. But every shepherd, every teacher, every evangelist is a saint. Each and every saint, everyone in this room that claims the name of Jesus for their life is, according to verse 12, a minister of this new reality. We are all called to use our gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. Now listen, I, I, I can't be built up unless you exercise your gifts on my behalf. And you are not going to be built up if I don't exercise my gifts for your behalf. That takes an extraordinary, a superhuman kind of unity. It's the kind of unity that no human could ever come up with. And man, that's good news for us. That's good news because that means that God has a plan for us. Let's actually pick it back up. We're going to be in verse 13 now. God has sent these gifts of his people to his church so that they would equip you and equip myself for ministry uh, of building up the church. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. I feel like my cheek stings a little bit because Paul has just kind of put us in our place. Like, did you catch that? He, he very accurately describes us as children, all right? He says, we're children. We're so easily tossed about. Like, have you ever tossed a child? It's so easy. They can't defend themselves. Seriously, go to Chuck E. Cheese today. You just go grab, don't do that. I'm kidding, don't do that. No, Paul's saying that we're children because there's something that God desires us to attain to that we haven't done yet, okay? We're not there yet. He equates this to maturity in verse 13. Okay, so I'm a poor Greek scholar, but it is important to note that the original language the word mature, teleos, please correct me, I'm not going to pronounce it right, I'm not worried about it. Teleos, it translates pretty directly to being complete mature, complete. We are incomplete beings, you and I. As long as we are incomplete, we are prone to division from every new thought, we're prone to division from every new teaching, from dishonesty, from man-made schemes, those things, by our default, want to divide us, and they're very good at it. So how do we mature? And what in the world do we mature into? Well, if we look at the book of Hebrews, the idea of maturity actually shows up again in chapter 5. Uh, without getting in the weeds too deeply, uh, I'm going to have it on the screen for you here. So Hebrews 5.14 says this, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. Paul is using the metaphor here again of us being children. See, when we're children, what he's saying is we can digest milk, and that's it. 
So as we grow into adulthood, we, we mature until we are finally complete in our physical formation. It's not until we're mature that we actually have the incisors and the molars we need to tear the meat off the bone and mash it up into goop and send it into our digestive tract. And at that point, our digestive system, it now has the biological makeup necessary to break down the meat into the protein that our body needs. When we're children, we don't have that ability. It takes maturation. Our spiritual maturity functions in much the same way and seemingly is defined by our ability to use discernment. Also notice here that it says our discernment must be trained by constant practice, which I think is just so fitting, right? Because we've just, we've just come out of a, a, of a broad look at the spiritual disciplines and how practicing them engages your spirit and grows you. He's saying this maturity will not come about passively. It's not going to happen. It's not going to form itself. We must constantly and purposefully be engaging our discernment for it to become strong enough to actually be useful to us. This here is one of maybe the only, though at least the greatest reason why cable TV has been on my mind so much lately. It's been weighing on my mind pretty heavily. Because conflict sells so well, major news outlets have gone further and further into the extreme, into the extreme as time goes on. It boosts ratings, like it's good for them. But kind of as a result, our culture here in the U.S. has essentially become polarized to one side or the other. And where that leads us to naturally is it draws us into echo chambers. Pick your poison, right? Your, your favorite, like, hyper-progressive Twitter account, your conservative-only social media. Like, those things are echo chambers. And what happens when we dive into echo chambers is we just get stuck in a feedback loop, right, of, of just ideas and arguments and radical blah, 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 blah. Like, I'm sick of it, right? Aren't you? I'm sick of it because I took part in it for a long time. I guess, sidebar, if, you, if I have frustrated you with weird, dumb things I posted on social media, man, I repent of that. Talk to me after. I'll apologize to your face. I was immature. I like to feel like I have grown but because, and I'm speaking from experience, that we get stuck in these feedback loops, what happens is we stop questioning the things that are being presented to us and we just begin consuming. It, it's because we're around seemingly like-minded people that share our values and they share our ideas. So we feel like we can trust them. The problem, of course, is that none of those values, none of those ideas can save anyone. None of those values or ideas are Jesus. None of those things are the cornerstone of the church. I mean, sure, somebody will tell you this or that policy best represents Jesus. But again, policy is not the cornerstone of the church. Jesus is. Maturity in this context, and there are a lot of contexts to exercise maturity, I just, this one's the most heavily on my mind. Maturity in this context, it goes back to being ready to digest meat correctly. Please hear me right here. Maturity is not our ability to consume whatever's placed before us. True maturity is the discernment to know whether or not what is being presented to us is beneficial to the body. 
Let me read that again. True maturity is the discernment to know whether or not what is being presented to us is beneficial to the body. When we only hear ideas that we like, we, we can't or we won't practice discernment. We're not actually engaging in anything meaningful. When we fail to practice mature discernment in this context, it ultimately leads to contempt. Contempt is toxic to unity. I would argue being openly hateful is easier to deal with. It's, just, it's out in the open. It's obvious. We can do something about it. But contempt is a silent killer because it works its way into every interaction that you and I have with somebody that's not a part of our group. That's what contempt does. We breed, we foster and cultivate contempt for our fellow image bearers, those that bear the same image we do. We breed contempt when we believe that their culture or ideals or policies don't line up with what we believe that is right and good and that it's our responsibility to change them. And this just, it stems from a bad assumption. It stems from the wrong assumption that unity requires uniformity. And those are not the same thing. You understand that? Praise God, unity and uniformity aren't the same thing. Paul has just told us the new reality of Christ is that people don't look, people that don't look and that don't act like each other, they're still able to be a part of the same family without losing everything that made them unique. Notice, the Bible doesn't say that that, that Gentiles can become Israelites. That's not what the Bible says. It says that Gentiles and Israelites are members of the same body. And that's good news for us. It has immense ramifications for us in this body today. So maybe I should tell you, diversity is not just about skin color. It's not just about where you come from, okay? We have a chance to be unified with each other despite our differences in every other area in our lives. I would even argue that unity is deeper and it's sweeter when our differences are greater and when they're more pronounced. Listen, I think you'd have to be pretty out of touch or at least willingly ignorant to not know that there are several pressing issues that are on the mind of the majority of people in our culture. In this room, even, you may not know this, you should know this now, there are people with vastly different stances on important issues. I should be honest with you. You have earned it. You've earned my honesty. You deserve it. Um, there are things, and if this, this is just me, if I'm totally in the wrong here, you can disregard, that's fine. But there are things that I am afraid to talk about with other Christians. I'm gonna broach a couple of sensitive topics, so hackles down. I'm afraid that my thoughts on, for example, gun control, or abortion, 
my thoughts on COVID-19, the pandemic, I am afraid that my thoughts on those things are going to be so different from yours that you or I are going to decide that these differences matter more than what unifies us. If you feel that way, let's hang out. Let's talk about it. I know in my head, like I know it's not supposed to be that way, but I still feel that fear. But I do have hope. I have hope in all this because I know that maturity is a process. It takes time. It's not done yet. It takes purposeful effort. The good news is that it's, maturity is a process. It actually has an attainable outcome, according to our scripture today. Christ's church will grow into maturity and unity, and we actually read earlier what that unity is. Verse 13 says that we will attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Okay, so if you're like me, you may have read that as just a two-point checklist for us to be unified about, right? Be of the same faith, be of the same knowledge. But then Paul says we have to have the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, okay, so does that mean we have to have as much faith as Jesus did? Does that mean we have to be as smart as Jesus? Like, church, that ain't going to happen. Jesus made everything. He knows everything there is to know about everything and anything forever. That's not what we're talking about. Let's go ahead and train our powers of discernment here for a second. Paul is telling us that we will attain the unity, the unity of the faith that the Son of God has, and we will attain the unity of the knowledge that the Son of God has. We said earlier that this unity, it's not something that man could ever make, and that's completely true. Man could not make this unity because this unity has actually been made already. Jesus made this unity. It's his. He made this unity through his faith in the Father and his personal knowledge of the person of God. Therefore, because Jesus trusted the Father, we are able to be in complete unity with each other by trusting in the Father as Jesus did. And because Jesus knew the Father intimately and he knew him personally, we also are able to know God, the Father, intimately and personally. And as we mature, we will come into the fullness of the knowledge of God as a person, the same as Jesus did. We will mature into that. That is a thing that is going to happen because we're his church. This unity is the new reality that transcends all of our other differences. We, can, we are called to facilitate and maintain that unity. That's what we're called to do, not create it. We are called to facilitate and maintain that unity through our unique gifts by using them to purposefully build up the body of Christ. See, if we try to manufacture unity, it's always going to be around secondary principles. Instead, we are able to come together in Christ Jesus. When we come together in Christ Jesus, we can have those hard conversations. And they'll be good. They'll be good conversations. And it'll be okay if we don't fall in the same spot at the end of the day because we have the greatest thing in common. Let's read the last portion of our scripture this morning as we come to a close. 
Back in Ephesians 4, we're going to read verses 15 and 16. And we're going to close out today. So instead of being tossed about by winds and waves, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That first part there, speaking the truth in love, that's a really important verse, and I think it's really important to understand because it is so easily weaponized. See, if our focus is on uniformity rather than unity, speaking the truth in love becomes using the truth to change someone because we think that would be loving. You understand the distinction there? We need to understand that these two things are very different. Maturity would be discerning that the difference between using the truth at somebody, right? Using the truth at somebody, just lobbing, at the, lobbing truth grenades at somebody. The difference between doing that because you think they're wrong and speaking the truth because it builds up the body. Those are our two options when it comes to speaking the truth in love. Paul says that we are growing into Christ into his stature. Jesus is the point at which all truth and all maturity and all unity revolve around. He's the standard. He's the measure with which we will be judged. Maturity, teleos, is the completion of what it means to be human. What it means to be human, a complete human, is to be judged by the measure of Jesus. Jesus is the perfect standard because he was the perfect human. He did all that man was supposed to do. He was all that man was supposed to be. There's no better common ground for you and I. If Jesus' trust in and knowledge of the Father is our point of unity, we have more common ground from opposite ends of any political spectrum than any two, whatever, Republicans and Democrats have that don't belong to Jesus. We can have the hard talks, and even in them, we can be eager to maintain unity throughout our differences because we have practiced our discernment well enough to know that Christ is the solid rock that we are able to stand on. And all the secondary things, they're just sinking sand. Secondary issues, they can come and go. The winds of doctrine, they will change, but if we purposefully and eagerly maintain unity in Jesus the body of Christ will be bound together tighter than anything we could ever bind ourselves together with. And nothing could seriously threaten to tear us apart because Jesus holds his church together as the cornerstone. So what I invite you to do today is to just praise God for the gifts of the people in this room. Each of us has a role to play in equipping each other for the ministry of God, uniting all things together in heaven and all things together on earth through Jesus Christ. And if we can practice our discernment in the things we consume, we'll find that these secondary issues are nothing compared to the gospel of Jesus. So let's pray. Let's pray today as we close. Heavenly Father, we need unity. 
Every time something happens in our culture, we need unity. Every new development, God, we know can drive us together or apart. So, Father, we need you. We ask that you reign supreme in our hearts and in our minds. God, if we live in fear of what other Christians might think of us, Father, let us just trust in you and know that Jesus is far greater than any fear. Remind us that though the world outside might seem crazy, God, you are solid. You never change. You are the same day today, tomorrow, and forever. God, we can trust in you. God, help us grow in maturity to the fullness of the stature of Christ, that we trust in him so much that we are able to trust in you because he trusted in you. That God, we know one day that we will know you intimately and completely because Jesus was able to do that for us. Father, we love you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the time that we've had together to open your word. And I pray that it has blessed somebody today. God, just bless us as we continue to work through unity. We love you, Lord. We now lift our voices to you in song. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.